Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Ramon Alam. Ramon, how are things? Are you sick of your home office yet? You know, I'm somebody who's been working out of a home office for a while, and so I'm not terribly sick of it. But I think that we are reaching this moment where most of our colleagues, it's been four or five weeks now away from the comfort of a workplace. And I happen to be reading a novel about an office. Um, I'm reading Joshua Ferris's novel, And Then We Came to the End, is what it's called. It's a 2007 book about the staff at an advertising agency in Chicago um, awaiting their layoffs and it's a really penetrating and kind of surreal look about what it is like to be in an office and it's reminding me of my own experiences when I worked in an office and that what office culture is like. Are you missing that right now, June? You know, it's funny because I'm one of those people who as a very much of an introvert, I am not really missing like having to steal myself. Um, I get much more work done when I'm at home. I find it much easier to concentrate But I do miss seeing people's faces. I miss those funny little conversations, sometimes awkward little conversations. And I do think, you know, especially in journalism, is there's this kind of cliche that, oh, you know, ideas are sparked in kind of hallway conversations. At different times, I've kind of regarded that with different degrees of skepticism. Um, But I do think there's definitely something to it. And I think I'm really just in my own head now. Of course, that's mostly about not really having conversations, face-to-face conversations with anybody in any circumstances except in the grocery store. But, you know, we're basically, it's like told a price, offer money. Um, So I do miss that part of it. I think that there are all these little rituals of office life, like getting your coffee from a certain place or taking a certain elevator or saying hello to the security guard who's on that same shift. And all of those things contribute to the rhythm of a day. And I think it can be hard to replicate some of that when you're working at home. And um, I actually ran into another parent from my kid's school last week, and I told her this, that um, we had had some success the first couple weeks of homeschooling by taking my kids out for a Stroll before we started in the morning. So it was almost like we were replicating our subway ride to school. Ah, yes. Because I think you just sort of, your body acclimates to certain things, even if it's the terrible co- coffee dispenser coffee from the right. office kitchen. And some of those things can become a part of the work that you do. Absolutely. Well, speaking of work, um, today you spoke with someone who's a writer, a director, a producer, Domaine Davis. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Domaine Davis's name came to my attention when I was watching the Netflix series Self Made, which is a four-episode biopic of Madame C.J. Walker. And I hadn't known Domaine's name prior to that, but I was so curious about what it was like to work on a project like that. Yeah. This show, Working, is about people engaged in creative labor, and so I was naturally drawn to talking to someone who is a director because it's like what could be more creative, but I was also really interested in talking to somebody who is a working director, who is not sort of a fancy Paul Thomas Anderson kind of auteur living in their own universe, but someone who is clocking in and directing episodes of television and doing what you have to do to survive in a very cutthroat business. And I think Domaine was the absolutely perfect person to talk to because she's got an incredible resume, she's got an incredible work ethic, and I felt like our conversation had so many takeaways for not how to succeed in Hollywood, but really just sort of how to succeed in life. It was a really fascinating conversation. I really loved talking to her. I'm really excited to learn more about Domaine Davis and her work, so let's take a listen. 
Domaine Davis, you are a director, you're a producer, you're a voiceover artist. It seems like you do a lot. So I'm I'm curious to hear in your own words, what do you do? Uh, I wear many hats. My mother would say I don't have enough heads for all the hats that I wear. I think I'm a, probably I'm a writer first. I've, I love writing. I've been writing since I was, you know, 12. Well, I've kept journals since I was 12. Um, and then I became a copywriter. So uh, in advertising, uh, and then I became a director of independent feature films, and then now a television director. So I do all of those things. I produce as well, and I also do voiceovers. Hustle, hustle. I like it. <laughs> That's it's imperative, right? Yeah. I mean, I think people hear that word director, and they think of somebody, you know, having meetings at the Chateau Marmont and like, you know, collecting these massive paychecks and. I wonder if there's a gap between the public's perception of what's bound up in that word and what it's like to actually be a working director. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, being a working director is actually a lot of work. And the, the Marmont stuff is, that's awesome. That is like 1 64th of, <laughs> of what happens if there's even the time, because usually you've got to work the next day. So for me, that's very, very rare. Um being a director is about taking a look at the script, coming up with, for me, a visual theme that I see that I can sort of add on as a layer, um, finding out that that writer's intent, and then executing it through my director of photography, the line producer, um, visually uh, keeping a hold on that story, making sure that it fits in with episodes that have come before it, if I'm working in episodic and then working very closely with cast and crew to sort of get what's down on the page and just translate. I, I sort of consider myself a vessel when I'm on set. So it's a, it's a lot of meetings. Um, it's a lot of having answers to questions. That's what you're doing all day is people are asking you questions or asking you what you like, what you want. Uh, and so you have to know what you want. And I think it's actually kind of a great thing because it gives you the opportunity to always come to a situation knowing what you want. And so uh, because everything works so quickly on a television set, more so than a film set even, uh, you've got to absolutely be like, no, this is what I want. And oh, we're not going to be able to get that. All right, let's pivot. I only need this. I just need that. How am I going to tell this story? Is it the case that you always know what you want? Or are you leaning on this team of people to tell you oh, we think this dress is better or this is what's going to work better. Or, you know, like, I mean, what's that sort of give and take? For me, the best idea wins. Mm -hmm. So I come into a situation being like, this is what I want. This is what I see for this character or this situation or this shot or this scene. But because I'm not a person who knows how to work the camera, I'm not a, a key grip. I'm not a gaffer. Um, you know, so someone who does lights is gaffer. Someone's key grip, you know, sets up everything, makes, makes everything move. Dolly grip pushes the, the camera on a track so that it moves so that you can get a tracking shot. I don't know how to do all those things. And also I wouldn't be able to do all those things. Those are different union jobs. Um, I'm always open to other people's ideas and how we can best come up with a solution to whatever the, the creative uh, images that, that I want to create. And I find that that's when you get everyone's best work. Everybody's engaged. I think being on 
a Fillmore TV set is very similar to um, how I view being in the world. I think people want to be seen and heard. Mm. And when they're seen and heard, they come at everything very differently. They're suddenly comfortable. They understand that you acknowledge the hard work that that they're doing. Um, and they're more inspired and more apt to to take a real true part in it and give their best. And so that's what I'm trying to do at any given moment so that everyone feels engaged and we kind of all get to the next step together and feel good about it. When I think about what a director does, like I'm not sure I have a good grasp on what that is to have to liaise, as you're describing, with all of these different people who are highly technically skilled at things that you may not even be able to do yourself and rely on them to execute a vision. And as you yourself said, if you're directing an episode of a television show, it's executing your vision for material that was developed by other people and what they wanted, right. you know? And so it's like, you're right. just, a, you're, you're at the top of the structure when you're on a set, but you're also a link in a larger chain. And I think that's so, I think that challenges maybe some of the uninformed ideas about what a director is and what they do. Yeah, I mean, there is absolutely no way I could do it without any of those people. Mm -hmm. So I, I come to the situation very grateful and I come to it saying, you know, this is what I want. This is how I'm seeing it. But what do you think? Mm -hmm. What's your idea here? Mm -hmm. And how can you add to it? And then based on, okay, the equipment we have, where the light is facing, how the actor feels, when the wardrobe is landed, when it's lunch, that's when yeah. we arrive yeah. at, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because there's so many other factors sure. yeah. um, uh, that are that are involved in it. So it's a lot of coordinating. Um, it's a lot of juggling. I rarely sit down when I'm on set. Um, the chair is always there, but I'm always standing. I like to check in with people and make sure that everybody's okay. Again, sort of the seen and heard aspect of it. Yeah. I start every morning by saying good morning to everyone. I shake their hand. And at the end of the evening, uh, every shoot day, I go around to as many people as I can. And I thank them for the day because I, I appreciate them being there. And I want them to know that I couldn't have done this without them. It's a lot of emotional labor. No wonder you can't go out for drinks at the bar after, <laughs> after a day on set. <laughs> yeah, but I, I can't not do it for me. You know, that's right. just the it's way that I part operate. of your process. Yeah. 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 So you made your first feature film in 1997. Is that right? Yes. So how, how, how old were you then? Oh my God. Um, I don't, I was in my twenties. You were young. You were just starting baby. out. Yeah. You were a baby. I was just starting yeah. out. Yeah. I was a baby mid twenties, I guess. And yeah. I'm, I'm curious about um, what that decision looked like. Were you, were you itching to make your own big project and just do something from the ground up as opposed to working as an apprentice on other directors' projects? Or was apprenticeship not really an option for you where you were professionally or even geographically and you just decided to take a stab at something? Yeah, it, I came at it with a cause. So I was working as a copywriter in advertising. I was visiting my, my niece and uh, she wasn't there. So I was leaving a note for her. I left it on the bed and I saw that she had photos up on her wall and I'm looking at the photos of her friends. Some I know and some I don't. And then she had these funeral programs and I was like, what? And over the course of a year and a half, she had lost four close friends to violence. She was 16 at the time. Hmm. She'd never expressed it to me, which was also concerning because we were you know, quite close. But I was floored. So I'm from Boston. So at the time I was speaking at Boston Partners in Education, which uh, was an organization where you go to inner city schools and you talk about different careers. And so I would always talk about advertising because there's so many different jobs that you can do, um, you know, at an advertising agency. And I was like, OK, I can double up on that. 
but what else can I do? And I literally went, oh, I'll make a movie. Because to me, making a movie back then was the quickest way to get a concept out to a lot of people at once and to hopefully stop this this cycle. So I never made a movie before, um, but I had all of Spike Lee's books. Spike Lee had done uh, one book for each of his first films Mm -hmm. that had the script, the budget, and a journal. And then Robert Rodriguez had a great book, Rebel Without a Crew, which I read. And of course, El Mariachi's, you know, legend. And I was like, I'm going to make this movie. And I didn't know what a through line was. So a through line is sort of the most basic way to say, you know, this is what the movie is about, mm-hmm. like, a, like a synopsis in a couple of sentences. Um, to me, that was very similar to a strategy statement and advertising. Okay. Yeah. Right. That's the driest yeah. way that I can express this concept. So I'm like, all right, what is the concept? And for me, the concept was, well, if we continue to kill each other, there won't be any black people left. So I came up with that. And from there, I thought, all right, this is going to be set in the near future. I took it Robert Rodriguez El Mariachi style. Well, he was like, what do I have? I have this, you know, guitar. I have this El Mariachi um, <laughs> outfit and I've got a turtle. And I was like, OK, I have um you know, I have these friends. I have my art director at the time. He was like, I want to be involved, pulled him in. Producer at the ad agency where I was, pulled him in. And I also had vendors who were friends who I've worked with before in advertising. Who, when they found out that I was going to do a film, were, they, I want to help. I'll edit it for you. I'll make the music. So we pulled all of those things together and made uh, my first indie feature, Black and White and Red All Over. Um, and it got into the Sundance Film Festival in dramatic competition. I mean, so that was that is <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> okay. I, there's so many things I have to ask you right now. <laughs> you are saying it had never occurred to you to make a film before, but you, no. but you had these. You clearly you were a fan of Spike Lee. You were a fan of Robert Rodriguez. You had their texts, like so. Were you like an especial like movie person? Like, there, was there like this sort of passion? for you as a, just a, a movie goer or? Yeah, for sure. I love, I love films. I found that I was always that person who, while in the theater or watching television, I could predict what the next mm-hmm. thing was that was going to happen. I'm, and now the dog's going to jump into the car and the dog jumped into the car. I would often, and still I'll watch a movie and I'll say what the person is going to say before they say it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then I just, you know, I love images. I love, uh, you know, E.T. was big for me when I was little. Um, of course, you know, Julie Dash, massive Daughters of the Dust, sure, yeah. uh, Car Wash, you know, um, yeah. just all of these films that took you places and made you feel things and introduced you to people that you didn't know existed or um, more important, help you potentially get through things that um, you weren't able to get through. And I'm like, oh, OK, this is how I can get through this thing. And when I worked in advertising, one of the things I always did was try to give the viewer uh, a tool. So even if you're not going to buy this product, let me teach you something. So I worked on Reebok and Alan Iverson was um, one of the athletes that we worked with for just over a year. So we created a, a commercial where we broke down his crossover. So it's like, let's give his crossover to kids. They love him so much. Let's teach them how to do it. So I wanted to do the same thing with film, that's kind of where that came from in terms of, oh, I'll make a movie. And then I'll express to them, like, we can't continue to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was a massive uh, fan of, of films, and I watched way too much. Television <laughs> was my babysitter, so. <laughs> well, I think it, it served you well in the long run, it sounds like. But I, I think it's interesting that you were drawn to the idea of a message, almost like in advertising, like, when you had an assignment at an agency, that like, without the client, there's no assignment. Without the thing mm-hmm. that needs to be s- sold, 
told or told or communicated there's no imperative to make anything. And it sounds like that was the the driving force from your first film and your second film, which is available on Amazon right now. And I watched before our conversation, I felt, um, I felt that there were similarly an idea that you were, that you had a thing that you wanted to say as an artist, but also just as a, as a human being, that there's a a message or a moral or a tale inside and film was the vessel for that. But what you've just described okay, is not a normal trajectory, right? To be a young person <laughs> at an entry-level gig in advertising, you were living in Boston. Were you a, yeah. were you working as a copywriter yeah. in, in this agency? And, and then to, like, cobble together a crew, make a film with some, you know, with some real technical polish or enough technical polish that it would go to the Sundance Institute. So that's a really an impressive trajectory. What was it like to have that institutional relationship with Sundance after making one movie? Um, It was pretty, it was pretty powerful. I mean, I don't think that I thought that that would happen, but going to Sundance was um, phenomenal. Actually, I'd entered Toronto first because sort of in the, you know, in the timeline of festivals, that's what you do Toronto first. And I was uh, working late at the agency and the agency where I was at the time had given us a month off to make the film, which was also really mm, incredible yeah. and generous. And, um, and the, I picked up the phone and it was Toronto calling. And she said, uh, I have to tell you, um, you didn't get in black and white and we're all over did not get into the festival. And I went, oh, okay. She was like, but it was a very difficult film for us to let go of. And we really loved it and appreciated it. And so she was like, we held on to it for a long time, but then we let it go. And I said, okay, well, thank you so much for calling me and letting me know how it affected you. Just like trying not to, you know, like right. get emotional. And she said, have you submitted it to Sundance? And I said, not yet. You know, the, the deadline isn't until July. So I was just waiting. She was like, don't wait. This is a film that they'll remember. Send it to them now. And I did. And the other thing that I didn't realize is a lot of the festival programs talk to each other as well. Uh And so entered it and then it got in and then it became, all right, now how are we going to get to Sundance? And we turned that into let's rent a Winnebago. Let's get most of the crew. Let's drive across country. Let's stop at places that are important to us in the film and also important to us as black people. We filmed the whole thing. And that begat us getting on 48 hours Uh back then. Um, But getting to Sundance was... Uh, validation in a in a way that I hadn't anticipated. A couple of things that stick with me the most, though, are I went to a party when it was um, at, at uh, New Directors New Films at MoMA in New York, and a woman came over to me and she said, I just want you to know that I saw your film at Sundance. And I said, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And she began to tear up and she said, it's still with me. And I said, oh, my goodness, thank you. And she was like, I'll never forget it. And then even more important for me, when it showed at the Institute of Contemporary Art here in Boston, um, a young kid came over to me and, you know, he's, he said, uh, yeah, I just want you to know, like, that was me. Like, I used to do that, but I'm not going to do it anymore. And I, <laughs> I said, right. thank you. Yeah. And so that's it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's I mean, like, that let's means, not... Yeah, that means more to you than yes. the pat on the back from your peers or people you really respect yeah. in the business, you know, like, yeah, I mean, that's why I made it. Yeah. 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 So you you made lift your second mm-hmm. film four years later. What changed for you in that interim? Like, what did you learn? What were you doing in that four year period? 
Um, still working at the advertising agency because hustle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because my mother worked two jobs and went to night school. So yeah. that's that's yeah. what I saw. That's yeah. my example. Um, and also we had gone to the Sundance Labs, which um, yes. I don't think people realize that the Sundance organization has all of these different labs, not just for screenwriters and directors, but for composers and for playwrights and for producers. And so it behooves you to find out what those deadlines are and enter your your piece anytime and do it frequently because they get to know you and they're looking for different and varied voices. So I went to the labs through the labs, which is basically like space camp for filmmakers, um, met all of these incredible artists and people. The labs allowed uh, you to, what you do is you pick five, three, four to five scenes from your film. When you're out there, you make, uh, you shoot that with a very small crew. And then they fly in advisors, creative advisors from Los Angeles and New York or wherever. And at the end of every week, because you're there for three or four weeks, you sit down with these creative advisors who ask you why. Why did you choose this? Why did you, what, what was the intent here? Why, why, why? And so that I incorporated into my everyday life. You know, it's like, well, why? Why is this the way it is? And when you, when I watch a film, when I watch commercial, when I listen to a song, when I'm talking to someone, when someone needs advice, I'm like, well, why did you, you know? So that was incredible to get that uh, from Denzel Washington and Kathy Bates sure. and Alan Daviau and, yeah, sure, you know, just people who like, what? And so, um, that's what had happened in between. And then through there, we met Hart Sharp, who were the producers of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, we met uh, Jim Mangold and Kathy Conrad, who <laughs> became executive producers. They mm-hmm. came on board, which was absolutely incredible. Um, and then we made, you know, we made the film. And, and uh, uh, initially, I'll tell you, that was supposed to be um, Rosario Dawson. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she got Pluto Nash. And so she dropped out. And then... Um, <sighs> Then you got, Washington. you got an unheard of actress named Carrie Washington. Got a, got a little known, you know, um, Jim McKay, which is another thing that happened through Sundance, who did Girls Town, wrote me the most beautiful letter that I still have after he saw Black and White and Red All Over, and um, incredible filmmaker and director. And we had stayed in touch, and at one point, I emailed him and I said, Rosario's out, I don't know if this is going to happen, we're looking at other actors, but, and he, he said, oh, I, I worked with someone on our song. Her name's Carrie Washington. I think you'd really like her. And I went, oh. And then Carrie Barden brought her in, our, our casting, uh, incredible casting agent. And she came in to actually read for the friend. Um, oh, and then huh, both we all looked yeah. at each other. She came in to read for Camille. And I said, will you read for Nisi? And she was like, yeah. And she was brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I mean, she... I. She's one of those people who just has a particular charisma on camera and yeah. somehow is more beautiful now than she oh was then. God. It's like it doesn't really <laughs> add up to me, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's I'm I'm going I keep asking her where that fountain is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering if anyone is interested in professional shoplifting. I definitely recommend watching the film because I I was really I thought that you know, in the film Carrie Washington plays a woman who works at a department store but also sort of makes a living professionally shoplifting and it's kind of i i got like an adrenaline rush like watching her do it you know like it just felt like this high and uh it really made me think about a whole other way of life a like a way of life that's quite different from my own um (laughs) that's awesome that's a wonderful compliment yeah i really liked that that aspect of the movie I I'm I'm like the way that you talk about um, balancing between your work as um, 
someone making independent features and somebody with a nine to five, nine to eight job at an advertising agency working for clients and, and, you know, paying the bills. Because I think that maybe there's a tug of war in people's ideas about being um, a professional versus being an artist. And I wonder if, Mm. if you think artist is even the right word for what a director is. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the words for sure. I think um, because you're thinking visually um, and because you have references both that you've seen and because the words inspire images, um, there's there's absolutely artistry to it for but, sure. But you just you also at the same time described earlier making a business plan to bring in the money from the investors who would be backing these films. And most painters or sculptors or composers are hopeless at that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm not, I, I, you know, I'm not sure where that comes from, but I'm, I used to be a secretary for many, many years. So I think I'm, that is always kind of in me. Uh I'm, I'm literally right now I'm looking at, um, I have two journals that are open and a a legal pad and I have about 20 post-it notes with lists of things (laughs) in front of me. (laughs) that right. I'm going to do when I hang up. Uh, so that's like, that's I, the producer I, in you too, isn't it? Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 I believe so. And and that's something that I wouldn't have. I don't know if I knew that that was called a producer until, um, you know, with black and white right over with lift, you know, that hustle, that spirit of, well, I know someone who's, you know, might be able to give me $10,000. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know this person who, owns the store, we might be able to shoot there because that all adds to the whole. For me, it doesn't help to cut myself off and say, well, I'm not going to deal with that part. That's not my job. Right. Like all of it is, all of it is a part, partially my job. All of it is my responsibility if it's not my job. And then I want to make sure the person who's doing that job knows, um, well, here's what I was shooting for. And also thanks for being here because I can't do that part. (laughs) So it's not just you saying, oh, I I need to have an actor who looks this way and she needs to be in a red dress and it needs to be, the ceilings need to be this height. You're also the person saying like, Oh, we need to call up my friend who owns a department store and we need to send a thank you note to them. And we need to do all of this stuff. And I, I, I just, I guess I really appreciate the way in which for you, that's all a part of the art. It's not just the glamorous fun parts, you know? Yeah. And that's the stuff that also I think makes you feel like you really feel like I did it. You know, mm-hmm. like I helped, I, 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 did I do everything that I could to help this particular project, this event? Like what, you know, did I exhaust um, every avenue that I could have mm-hmm. to, to make this a reality? I'm going to read something to you that um, Ava DuVernay, who is also a director, yes. said about you. She said, Domain Davis is an example of the kind of really dynamic director who actually directed a feature film that was applauded, yet can't get an episode of television. That is a broken system. Now, those are her words and not yours, so I can't ask you to like describe what's going on in her mind, but I'm curious to hear you describe your relationship with her and your experience navigating a business like Hollywood as a woman and as a Black woman. Yeah. Um, I am so grateful to Ava and what she's done for me and what she's done for other uh, female directors. You know, I was you know, still hustling, sort of, I'd written a bunch of scripts, I had a bunch of TV scripts, I had submitted scripts to the Episodic Labs, um, which is their television lab, and I was working with a with a different art director, freelancing at an agency, and opened up Twitter, 
and Ava had slipped into my DMs <laughs> and basically said, the "True fantasy." Um, the true, like what? <laughs> and she said, "You know," uh, uh, she said, "Hey, hey, sis." To which I was like, you know, hand to hand to pearls, sis. What's going on? Uh, you're you're a real Renaissance woman. And I was just now I'm just like fanning myself, you know. And my art director's looking at me like, what's going on? And she was like, might you have any scripts, hmm. television scripts to submit? And I knew that she was putting together a writing writers room for Queen Sugar. Um, and because I like to uh, set my intent, like after I wrote her back and I said yes and. Um, thank you so much for asking and, uh, here, here are two scripts. And she was like, Oh wow, this is great. Um, I went right to the library mm-hmm. after, the, yeah. after that. Literally I went from the office to the library and I said, well, I better go get, um, you know, queen sugar. And I better read that from cover to cover. Cause I'm going to be working on queen sugar yeah. because that's how I like to set my intent. So why not? Right. Why not? <laughs> and, and look, what, what's negative in that? I got to read a great book if nothing yeah, happens, yeah. you know? Um, so I, I read the book and I broke it down and I made all kinds of notes. Um, she and I kept in touch. Obviously, that didn't come to fruition. She put her writer's room together. Um, and then about a year later, Paul Garns, who is the executive producer on Queen Sugar and DMZ and uh, Cherish the Day and Selma and many other, the underground, um, called me up and was like, uh, hey, did Ava call you? And I'm like, what? No, you know, this is the Paul, Paul Garns. This is his MO. He's like very phenomenal, phenomenal line producer. Just very under, understated, very like, is you going? I'm like, no, like, I, I wanted to say, I don't even know who you are, sir. <laughs> I don't, what's that? You know, uh, no, no, she didn't. Yeah, okay. Well, she wants you to direct uh, episode 206 on Queen Sugar. So you'll, uh-huh. come, you'll fly down and you'll bliss this how it goes. And like, very quick two minute call. And I was just like, oh my God. Wow. Um, and changed my whole life, you know, changed, changed everything for me, got to let me know what is possible, even though knowing um, there aren't that many women of color directors, there, there aren't that many women directing, you know, big films, big television shows, um, putting that aside and looking at what it is that she's created for all of us and, you know, giving me a career. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful that this is not a secret people have talked about this a lot and i think Mm -hmm. that it's just really lovely to hear because it says to me that ava duvernay is conscious of her particular privilege of being the one let in the door yes and then she turned around and sort of held the door for so many other people and yes that's a very particular impulse that is not you cannot expect that of people, you, no. you know? And, um, and as you yourself just said, she changed your life because yeah. you were, you know, in 1997, you were a young woman who wanted to make a movie to communicate something that you deeply felt about, you know, the life of your niece and her generation of black kids in Boston. Mm-hmm. And yeah. now you work in Hollywood. You're, you know, I mean, you're, so the, the occasion for our having this conversation is that, um, there's a new, there's a new show called self-made, which is a four episode biopic of Madam CJ Walker, who is often talked about as the first black woman millionaire in this country. First self-made. First self-made. First self-made female. Female millionaire. And 
you directed the third and fourth episodes of this four-episode run. Tell me a little bit about your experience on that project and, and what your relationship was to that material. Um, I had always heard of Madam C.J. Walker growing up, of course, during Black History Month. Uh, and her story, it just stuck with me, being a Black woman, having Black hair, knowing the relationship that um, that women have with their hair and Black women in particular. We should say that. So the the, the basis of her fortune was a beauty company that she yes. she capitalized on catering to a huge marketplace of women who had never been sold anything to make themselves feel beautiful. And had never, um, you know, subsequently what she did in the process of building the company is building these women up and giving them agency and giving them um, their own franchises. This was before Mary Kay. Um, So when I heard that this was going to be a a television series, um, again, in setting my intent, I was like, I would like to work on that. And, and I began to sort of just talk about it to people when we talked about, oh, what are you going to do next? I said, well, I would love to work on this. And a very good friend of mine, director Shaz Bennett, who I met at the Sundance Institute, actually, she used to work at the Institute. She told L. Johnson and L. Johnson called me in for a meeting. Uh, she's a showrunner on Madam C.J. Walker. And I met her, Janine sherman uh Eric Oberland from Spring Hill Entertainment, which is LeBron James's company because they're producers, and Nicole Asher Jefferson, mm-hmm. who was a writer and you know created the idea for the series. Um, and I went in there just whole hog. Here's my presentation. Here's what I see. I would love to be a part of this. And then they not only... Kate brought me in to be a director on the last two episodes, but I've got to be producing director. So I got to be a producer on the entire series. Explain to, which, explain to me what that distinction is. Sure. So a producing director, which is um, Ava gave me my first uh, foray into that because I directed two episodes, a second season of Queen Sugar, and then I was producing director on the third season. Um, as a producing director, you're there to um, make sure that there's continuity, continuity through the visual elements of the show Mm -hmm. to make sure that the tenets of the show are sort of visually being abided by to help to translate the writer's vision make sure from the page to what you're actually seeing is what the writer wants to be boots on the ground to uh, facilitate again what i do seen and heard making sure that everybody's working in concert all department heads um trying to solve as many problems uh as possible before they become real problems um and then you get a say in the scripts. You talk about them, not just, you know, okay, from like a production angle. Do we need to go back outside for the scene that's only one-eighth of a page? Mm-hmm. Um, because if we do that, that means we have to dress all this stuff because it's a period piece. Can this happen in the foyer versus outside? Mm-hmm. Can we, you know, like how can we tighten this up? How can we make this happen? And then also getting comments on uh, the actual cuts, um, which is which is great. So it's sort of all the things that I love to do in terms of editing, giving input, being a sounding board, and then being there for the actors, making sure that the actors are okay, making sure the departments have heads have what they need, need making sure the crew has, you know, what they need, um, so that we can make our days and all feel good about it and move on to the next day and to whatever we're going to film next. Again, I'm just so struck by the distinction between what you're describing, which is um, 
being a team player, being a part of a collective and really trying to like all together make the best product you can, which is so distinct from my idea or this sort of cartoonish idea of a director sitting in a folding chair barking through a megaphone, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very yeah. different. It's really a different reality. Let me ask you a, like a really big philosophical question, which is, did you expect in 1997 or even younger to have a resume that that looks the way yours does now? Did you expect to have this kind of career that you now find yourself in? I have always expected that I would build um, my, this, my goal is to, to build an empire, not an evil empire. And so um, <laughs> that's a crucial that has always been, it's very, you know, very important, very important. Um, no stormtroopers. Um, so that has always kind of been um, in the back of my mind and knowing that, oh, I'm going to do television shows. I'm going to do film. I want to have a publishing arm of my company. And so I spent a lot of time when I was young and even now still making a distinction on the things that I want, but to be where I am now so fast with, with these types of people to have Ava DuVernay in my, in my phone that I can text with who calls me sis and, you know, like to, you know, to have those kinds of relationships. Um, I mean, you know, I, 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 when I met Cicely Tyson, um, I went and I put my hands out and she put her hands in mine. And I said, Miss Tyson, it is my honor. I said, my name is Domain. I'm your, I'm your director. It is my honor to have this opportunity to work with you. And I'm so excited. And she said, well, we'll see how you feel at the end of the episode. And I was like, oh yeah. You know, so then there's that element. There's the fact that all these people are like real, they're yeah. dope, they're yeah. artists, they're creative, and they're there to like play and, you know, I've been so fortunate to get to work with great people who are real people who aren't pretentious and overbearing. And, you know, it's it's a gift. So, yeah. no, wow. <laughs> no, I didn't expect all that. My final question for you is um, what's the best professional advice you've ever been given? Oh, man. Um, or what advice do you like to give to because I'm sure now you probably see now now you're in the position of slipping into a young director's DMs and saying hey I, <laughs> I saw this short thing that you did I, I liked that I thought this was groovy you know what what would you tell the, the filmmakers who are coming up after you um, I would say uh, I would say I would say two things I would say um, worrying Worrying is preparing for something you don't want. Ooh, and I would say, um, yeah, that really helps me, especially yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I would also say of uh, my, my very, very close friend, Risa Mickenberg, who's a screenwriter. Um, she did the film Egg and also an author and a singer and everything. She said to me um, when I was going through a, a particular tough time, she said, well, just approach it with joy. Mm -hmm. If you approach it with joy, then you'll never regret it. So whatever I'm doing, no matter how tedious, no matter how intense, I try to find some joy in it. And then I just try to magnify that as much as possible. That is really good advice. And now I'm going to let you get back to work. Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? 
Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Roman, one of the most interesting things in that interview was how right from the very beginning of her career, Davis's work has been driven by her having something to say, uh, a message she wanted to get across. And I was also really interested in the way that she connected that to her early work as an advertising copywriter. Um, and I'm curious, when you're writing fiction, do you have a message that you're trying to convey to readers? Is there a mission statement in the back of your head? It would probably serve my work better if there were a mission statement, (laughs) if there were a starting point, if there were an assignment. But I think that is a great place to begin because I think what that helps you do is it keeps you from becoming too um, self-indulgent, too Mm. lost in your own thoughts and keeps you focused on what the objective of the piece of work you're making, whether it's a movie or a story or a poem or whatever, it keeps you focused on the objective of it and not just sort of your own subjective experience and feelings. I was also really struck by her story of how she says hello to as many people on set as she can, of thanking them at the end of the day. It sounded really sincere. And there was something really touching about that feeling of appreciating your collaborators. Uh, In a way, it's good manners. um, But I really enjoyed the sense of intention there. I was really touched by that. I I think you're right. I think that you, I think it is partially good manners and maybe just good common sense to be nice to the people on whom you're relying to get Mm. the job done. But I also think it's clear that Domaine Davis really means that and that that's just kind of who she is. She struck me as someone who's very down to earth in a business that is not always down to earth. And that that kind of approach seems consistent with that. But I think what we're really talking about is being a good boss. And I think so many of us have had that experience of having a boss or a person in uh, or an authority figure acknowledge your contribution to a team mm-hmm. effort and you know how good that can feel and you know what that can do for workplace morale and your own performance and i just think that's a very astute lesson to learn and i think it's one that applies in the workplace and i think it it's one that applies when you go to the grocery store i think it's one that applies when you're just out in the world yeah. saying your pleases and thank yous gets you really far in life you know another thing that occurs to me too um you know she mentioned many at many points uh, very appropriately you know that it it it's hard to be a black woman in this particular industry and i think whenever you are coming from outside whether it's you know moving to another country you feel i think extra grateful for those like etiquette or the rules of manners um it's something that you can hold on to you know if there is if there's a rule book you can follow um then i think it's easier to feel that you are 
doing the right thing or just not questioning yourself. Um, and I, I'm absolutely projecting there, but I remember being completely obsessed with the preppy handbook when I came to America <laughs> because like, okay, it was, it was a set of rules as, as weird and inappropriate as they might be. At least there are rules. And I think being polite is kind of, is the same thing. And I think that the inverse of that being that it's unacceptable, mostly for women, certainly for black women, to break those rules of conduct. Mm -hmm. And so to get away or to be valorized for being a bad girl in filmmaking is really unlikely to happen, as opposed to if you're a white man who sort of acts out, you can kind of, that can kind of become its own reward. So I do think that in some ways, it's just a reality on the ground that uh, decorum and power really dictate how you have to navigate a system like that. Absolutely. Um, I was really excited when during the interview, I was kind of reminded if I'd ever really been aware of it, that she had directed Lyft. Um, I saw it in a film festival when it was first released. And I remember having that exact adrenaline rush that you mentioned and feeling too that I was learning a lot about something, uh, in this case, professional shoplifting, which I, which I really loved. So Roman, I have a question for you. What's another work of art that took you inside another world and you came out of it really feeling that you'd gained a lot of new knowledge, however impractical? I'm going to cheat in my answer to your question, because what I have loved in cinema is movies that really do replicate an experience that I've had. Oh. And that is the experience of working in magazine publishing. And the magazine office is like a staple of a certain kind of horrible, empty-headed Hollywood film, mm -hmm. um, especially one about women, because... Um, it's like the, the quickest way to establish that a woman has some powers to make her an editor at a magazine. And she's yeah. sort of strolling about in a chic outfit in some like austere office building. And I worked in a in a fashion magazine for many years. And mm. of course, the urtext of this genre is the devil wears Prada. Um, I worked at Condé Nast when Lauren Weisberger was Anna Wintour's assistant and Ooh. was and wrote the novel The Devil Wears Prada is based on. And there's a lot those movies get wrong. Obviously, they're exaggerated for sort of cartoonish fun effect, but there's so much that they also get right, and it's really satisfying to watch um, a movie nail something with anthropological accuracy. Absolutely. Um, we must one day talk about The Bold Type, which is the, <laughs> the, <Yes>. TV, <laughs> the TV version of that story. <laughs> uh, my version of this is something slightly different. Um, I get a kick out of spy movies, and I promise that I have never been a spy. Pinky swear. <laughs> um, and also heist movies, which I could never do because I'm hopelessly impractical. But I feel like, and of course, this is very self-consciously, that's the, the exact point of them is to make you feel like you're getting inside something that they're spilling insider secrets. Um, they're, you know, they're almost designed to be like instructional videos. But... You know, I'm always convinced by it. I feel like if I ever need to go underground, the Americans taught me all I ever need to do. <laughs> you, I, you know, I'm going to be super successful. You could pull it off. It's like I, a how-to for you. Totally, totally. Well, June, I don't want you to go underground. I don't want you to change your identity. I want you to stay right here with us at Working because, as you know, one of the things we're planning on doing with this show is to help our audience solve their creative problems. So, listeners, if you have any questions about Working about creative work, about writing a novel, about writing an email, about thinking through a problem, please send them our way to working at slate.com. If and when we can, we're going to put those questions to our expert guests. And if you enjoy this show, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, 
bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial right now at slate.com slash working plus. So many thanks to Domain Davis for being our guest this week. Enormous thanks to our great new producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for a conversation between Isaac Butler and writer Megan Abbott. Thanks for listening. Now get back to work. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.